Welcome to the Screaming Into the Mic podcast, a medium normalizing the expression of women's anger. Soraya Chamali writes, gendered ideas about anger make us women question ourselves, doubt our feelings, set aside our needs, and renounce our own capacity for moral conviction. This podcast is where I take a stand and say no more through creating a safe space for women to share their rage in a public forum. I'm your host, Mary Abdul Malik Neal. I'm a musician community developer, and feminist activist. Join us for each episode as we talk with women about the struggles they face in work and life. We begin this podcast this season chatting with women in the arts. Thanks for tuning in. Today we welcome onto the show Dr. Karen Sunabaka. Karen is a composer who often finds inspiration from puzzles, stories, and her Métis and mixed European heritage. She has deep roots in the Red River Settlement, what is now known as Manitoba, Canada, and feels a strong connection to the Métis, Scottish, Swedish, and Finnish cultures. This mix of cultural connections sometimes creates conflicts and new perspectives, which she finds both interesting and challenging. Her music reflects this cultural mix through the exploration of the sounds and stories of the Canadian prairies. She often collaborates with her Métis mother, Joyce Clouston, who is a writer, an Indigenous cultural carrier, and social worker. Together, they have completed numerous works that explore family stories and the intersections of Indigenous settler relations and philosophies. For a list of recent pieces, check out the show notes. In demands as a composer, Karen enjoys the challenge of finding a balance between teaching, composing, performing, and keeping up with her favorite science fiction and fantasy series. Karen is an associate professor of music at Conrad Grable University College at the University of Waterloo. This is Screaming Into the Mic. Welcome, Karen, to the show. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. I'm so glad you're you're able to to come and join me here and talk about some of the fun things that I like, like screaming. But we'll get to that. Yes. All right. But first, I want to start with, um, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about your artistic practice? Mm-hmm. So I am a composer. Um, I'm also a cellist, but that my my musical time or, or what, I, what I ended up doing became actually writing music instead of performing music. I do perform a little bit still, but professionally I'm a composer and I'm really a composer in the classical tradition, if we say it that way. Um, But I bring in a lot of folk music and music of my Métis um, past and my Métis kind of um, upbringing, I guess, yeah. Yeah, and um, I know you're talking about, like, you you were telling me about the project that you're working on. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it really brings in your Métis roots. Yes, so I have a few projects on the go, but the the big one that I'm working on right now is called Jack the Fiddler. Um, And it's actually a little bit unique for me. Normally, I... I study women of my past, and this is the first time I'm studying my grandfather. So it's mostly been my grandmother and my great-great-grandmother and all of those women who I felt like didn't have a voice, which I think is relevant to this. Um, But this one is actually about my grandfather, Jack, who was a settler. 
And he actually found healing and wholeness through the Red River Métis community that my mom grew up in and that I spent a lot of time in when I was a kid growing up on the family farm, which was a with right in the middle of this Métis community. And so my grandfather had been born in, a, 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 like I said, a settler family, but in it was a pretty dysfunctional settler family okay yeah and so there was a there's lots of abuse yeah there's a lot of abuse and it all actually stems from a from a from my great-grandmother Matilda who I actually wrote about in another piece but anyways that's kind of how so so it's just a really cool thing to look at how a Métis community supported this young settler boy who had a musical ability um, even though his father my settler grandfather's father um, said no music in the house and all this kind of stuff yeah Okay. Well, we'll we'll definitely loop back with you at the end to see mm-hmm. where where when people can access this piece when it's going to be a live pr- public performance. Mm-hmm. But um, let's talk a little bit about sort of this is what this podcast tends to be about mostly. This um, what what is the what is your journey becoming an artist in this community in particular? I know you're you're coming from a different community, so please talk about that. Um, and and what have what has been some of your struggles trying to establish yourself here in the like region of Waterloo? Yeah, well, um, so I came to Kitchener Waterloo in 2017 um, because I was given a job, or I I guess won a job at uh, the University of Waterloo at Conrad Grable University College. So as a professor of music. Um, and mostly I teach theory and composition. So before that, so I'll get into how I how I came here. Before that, I was in Manitoba. Um, I actually studied all over the place. I studied in uh, Victoria, BC and in California, uh, but I ended up back in Manitoba as I, where I started my career as an academic at a place called Providence University College. But becoming an artist kind of starts before then, right? So as a kid, I grew up in a home where my father's family was a Swedish Finnish family, and he was big into classical music and sort of basically gave me no, no choice as a five-year-old. I had to study something, and so I picked the cello. Um, and so I started playing the cello, um, and that's really got me into music. But I always thought of it until even into like my 18, 19, when I was thinking about university, I guess a bit before that too, I thought music was more something I did on the side mm. because my mother's family where they were this mate in the middle of the Métis community and really were a Métis family. And so it was always something we did after work. Interesting. Yeah. So we would fiddle. And so I knew, I knew how to fiddle on a violin. I could bring out my cello and play with my grandfather, my grandmother. Um, my grandmother was on the piano. My my fa- my grandfather, like I said, Jack the fiddler. He was a fiddler, um, even though he was a settler. Although lots of settlers fiddle too, um, but it was uh, so. It, I always thought that it was something I would do on the side for some reason. That's so interesting. Yeah. So, so I, when did it come more to the forefront for you? Well, I started university in theater and drama. Okay. Of all the weird things, and I was not that great in acting classes. I took a few, but I wasn't great. But I, I don't know why I felt like that was more of a career or something. So I did, I did a year, but about halfway through that year, I realized that all my friends, like the friends who I was playing, like in all the orchestras that I'd played in, and I sang in the Mennonite Children's Choir growing up, all those things, they were all in music school. Right. And I thought, why am I not in music school? <laughs> Isn't that bizarre? And so then in my, like in my second year, I 
I transferred over. I, I had to do auditions. I had to bring, I had been kind of not really playing my cello much. And I went back and got lessons again and then became really serious. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then from there, mm -hmm. how did you get here? Yeah. So then I started, then I was doing cello, right? Um, so I thought I was, I mean, I didn't know what I was going to become. I had, I had said in my interview that I wanted to get a PhD in music, which I just don't even think I knew what that meant. <laughs> But I did. I did get a PhD in music. But I didn't even think about composition at the time. I did have an uncle on my dad's side, like, who was a composer. And I thought the music was weird that he wrote. <laughs> Which is funny. <laughs> like, what, what would I think of the music I write now? I probably would think it was weird. But, um, but then um, I started taking theory. And I had done, I was, music theory was so easy for me that I would, like, I never did it officially. I didn't do it through RCM or anything, but I would like tear through all the theory books and then not remember anything, right? <laughs> so not really know, understand the harmony or anything. So right. in first year university, you have to take music theory. Right. And I took it with the most incredible professors like Charles Horton and Lawrence Ritchie. They wrote their own theory book that was based on composition. So it was about learning through the history. Uh, and that's how I teach it now. But you first like write Candace's which is basically like a medieval chant. And then you learn, you learn about modes and then you learn about melodic figures. And so you just, you're slowly composing. And I got to the end of two years and I thought, I love this so much. And I just finished writing like a romance or a minuet for string quartet. And that was part of the theory program. I was like, I don't want to stop doing this. Right. And I was helping all the, my, like all my, my students, like my fellow students with the, with the homework. Cause I just loved it so much. And so then um, I, someone said, and I started seeing like sort of composition and you had to choose after, my, at this time, it's different now, but after two years in that program, you had to choose between performance, composition, music history, or just a general degree. Okay. Right. So there might've been, if, oh, education, of course, education was right. one too. Um, and everyone kept pushing me to do education or something, but I was like, nah, I think I want to do composition. So it was, it was kind of forced kept these four these choices kept being forced upon me a little bit um and I loved it like after my first year of composition we had to do a jury like as like I would do cello juries too and and the composition jury was so fun I'd written a lot of I'd written like six pieces in a year which was normally you have to do four and I easily did six and I remember the baroque professor who used to sit in on the composition juries he was like Karen Sunubuck, I think you found your calling or something like that. It was something very funny, very dear to my heart. Um, um, so, and I always remember that because it was, it wasn't scary. It was just fun to share my music. Um, and, and they were just impressed. So, oh, and that was really nice. Yeah. Right? It's so nice to be validated yeah. and like yeah. have your work praised. And Yeah. Well, and it was, and I had a good composition teacher. Like I think other women in my position sometimes are, discouraged out mm. so to talk about because the composition world is very gendered male if i say that correctly so there's a lot of men and i had a really great composition teacher michael matthews i still am great friends with him um he just really gave me the confidence in some sense and i also had a lot of confidence myself i had uh, my parents were both really great at you know saying go you kind of <laughs> you know and that really helps when you're a kid you think well everything i do is great um and it's not always great but but, um, but it was, it was, and he was truthful too. Like there was times where he would be like, this is just boring, Karen. And I was like, oh, right. But it didn't break me. Right. Like it was, it was really helpful 
Um, and so I learned that criticism was actually really helpful in, in crafting. It's, some, it's still sometimes smart sometimes too, when you're like, oh, that just sucks, right? But but you have to learn how to take it, right? Take the, the ups and the downs. Yeah. So, yeah. That's great. So you, you found your calling mm-hmm. in a male, in a very mm-hmm. male-dominated mm-hmm. area. Yeah, which is still very male-dominated. Yeah. Yeah. And then... Yeah. Eventually you found your way. Yeah. So, I mean, I went, did a master's and a PhD, both in California. Um, I was at San Francisco State, um, which is just really cool. And Mm -hmm. then I ended up in, um, at UC Davis, which was just near Sacramento. And that's where I did my PhD. My longest degree was my undergrad. Because I think, because then I took extra, like I took a year not in music. And then I did five years in music. So I really did six years of my undergrad but I just loved, like, I didn't want to end it. So I, I did way, way, way more courses than I needed to. And that last year was quite light. I just did a few things, but I wanted to do a third year of composition before going on. But then, yeah, master's in composition and PhD. Very quickly, my PhD took me like four and a half. So it was, it was quicker than my undergrad. And then how did you make your way back to Manitoba? Well, that was because of Preston. I wasn't sure what, I wasn't done my degree when we actually moved back. And Preston so, is... And Pre- oh, Preston is uh, my husband, and he's an Anglican priest. Okay. Um, and so he was studying. We, we actually both moved to California because we could both study okay. there. We tried a few... I, I think we might have... I might have ended up in Toronto or Vancouver on my own. Um, but he couldn't go to Vancouver. There wasn't a very good theology school there. Mm. Well, I mean, there's there's good ones. It was decent, but it, what, it wasn't quite right for him. Toronto... Well, that's a whole nother story because this is not about accessibility, but my husband uses a wheelchair. And at the time, the Toronto's, um, they couldn't support someone who had a disability. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that was Wycliffe College. Yeah. Now they can, but they hadn't done the right changes yet. So basically told him, don't apply here. Don't apply here. Like he put in his application and they just handwritten said, sorry, you can't come here. Oh. Yeah, it was, it was bad. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so California. So we ended up in California, which was great, actually, for us coming from Manitoba too and Winnipeg. Uh, the accessibility laws in California were so far ahead um, wow. that we used to, in Manitoba call ahead all the time and to make sure that he could get into a restaurant. And in California, you didn't because it was the law. So we would, could just go anywhere. And if it, you walked up and you thought, oh, there's steps. And then you realized the accessible entrance was around back or like there was always a way in. Sometimes it was through the kitchen, but there was always a way in. Um, and that was that was fascinating to me. Um, and then we got we got so lazy because we were there for five years and we started not having to worry about accessibility and came back to Canada. And so we came back because Preston got a job back in Canada, um, in, in Winnipeg, in, in, in fact. And so we moved back to my hometown. Um, and, um, and then I got a job very, I hadn't even finished my PhD, actually. It, I was still kind of working on the dissertation. Um, which was about women's voices, which is what we're going to get into. We're going to get into that yeah. for sure. Um, but um, <laughs> but we came back and I had, and I got it, like, I just, I hadn't even looked at this little small college in rural Manitoba. And um, it was a really great place to start. Um, at a certain point, it was quite restrictive. And so, so thus was looking for another job and ended up at University of Waterloo, which has been great. Conrad Grable has been really supportive of my work and what I do and has the resources to be supportive, unlike a small college where you're, teaching you know seven courses a year right yeah okay yeah Yeah. um and what have since you've been here Mm -hmm. sort of have have you found sort of establishing yourself as a new artist in this community 
And I know you mentioned that Conrad Grayville has given you resources. Yes. Beyond that, yeah. how has it... Yeah, that's really interesting. I Because it's mostly been based out of the university. So, so not so much within the community. I have applied for... Um, like water, Waterloo Region grants, which I haven't ever gotten. I've only applied okay. once, though. Um, but mostly I've just found because of the university resources, it has been incredibly supportive that way. I have started to connect a little bit with the Indigenous community, um, which has been great um, as well. Um, but mostly it really is the college. Yeah, And then, I, then someone like you, yeah. <laughs> meeting you, Mary, that has always been great. Um, and all the stuff that you do within the community, but yeah. And in terms of like, just so our listeners can understand, mm-hmm. like when you're referring to how you can establish yourself as an artist with university or the college mm-hmm. funding, like what does that look like? Um, it means that I can get help with travel if I need help for travel. I I, go, I mean, I, I did an album. Oh, this is I've actually want that's one good thing is that I've done my first album since being here. Congratulations. I know I was super excited. And it was it was through a local community connection. So it was um, Earl McCluskey, who who does a lot of recording in the area. I bumped into him and he was so helpful in me figuring out what to do and he became the producer and everything else so so that kind of connection was really great actually and that connection you did through the like was that was through through, it was through grable but i'd seen him at other community Mm. like he records other things so you know yeah he 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 does do a lot of stuff he does so much stuff around (laughs) here yeah and so and then he got me the connections like to he said this is the studio you want to go to like he just really like we kind of just really trusted him me and the so the pian- it was it's a piano solo album, and I can't really play piano very well, even though I wrote lots of piano music. Um, but uh, Daryl Friesen uh, is from a friend from Winnipeg, and so it was it was working with that. Oh, and I should I mean I should talk too. Like so, I've been um, starting to collaborate with the Andromeda Trio, um, and so they're a local trio as well. Um, the cellist is based here and in the in the in the um, KW Symphony. Um, so, so that has been really great as well. So I guess I have, I have to like, oh yeah, I am making connections. Um, and, and that has been a really serious and fantastic collaboration. So we're continuing to do, to do work together. So, and, and I reached out to them cause I'd known Miriam Stewart Craker, who's the cellist, um, from before we're kind of old family friends, but she's been part of this community for a while. So, so I guess I kind of yeah. wonder, um, how would it have looked for you to try to do your work? without mm-hmm. having the support of a university or a university college. Yeah, I don't know. It would have been a lot harder. And actually, I mean, to be fair, my time in Winnipeg, even I found it hard, like as an artist without, and I didn't have much university support there. I mean, they just didn't have a lot of money, right? So whereas here, um, the university does, they have a research fund and absolutely composition is considered research for them. And so, um, and the professional development, also is another way that they can support me financially. So like it was okay for me to go over budget on my album because they were supporting it, right? And I didn't have the same financial worries. So, I I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm in a very like plush place because um, my salary is decent, right? Right. And where unlike in Manitoba where the professor salaries are much lower Mm -hmm. Um, and I was at a small college, so it was even lower, right? Right. So, um, and it was a private small you know, college. So, um, so I, those things just really help. Like, it's just crazy. Like artists need so much more money than there's, than, than there's finances out there. So, you Absolutely. know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, for me, it's such a problem. 
Um, I think I'm at a point now where if I wanted to, I could live under below the poverty line and maybe make it as a composer, but maybe I would right. probably need to be taking part-time jobs, teaching classes still at the university. Um, right. so, and the only downside is that sometimes I don't have enough time to write, but I also love teaching. So, yeah. so that's okay. I can give up my composing time cause I do love to teach too. So you have a similar issue. Like we've, we, we've, had this conversation a few times mm-hmm. now where it's, you know, a gigging artist um, often has to supplement their income with other other jobs. Yes. Um, you just do that, but all in your one job. Yes. Yes. <laughs> where you're teaching yeah. and then you have to find time for your composition work yes. while you're teaching. Yes. So. Yeah. And I really only find time when I have a deadline, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> if I don't have a deadline in the next like three months. I feel like that's also a common artist theme yeah. <laughs> as well. And then you pull out your hair at the end and you think, why didn't I spend more time on this? I had all this time. And anyways, it's just. Yeah. yeah we like to work towards a deadline. It's, yeah. it's, it's the pressure yeah. of getting it done. Oh, yes, definitely. For sure. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to go back to you, uh, what you were mentioning about your research. Mm-hmm. Um I'm going to I'm going to pull a quote that I believe was from one of your like unpublished articles that you um, that you uh, shared with me. So in a biography about Yoko Ono, Yoko is quoted in 1992 referring to her screaming during live improvisations. And she said, it was all just a head trip. The avant garde boys didn't use the voice. They were just they were all just so cool. Right. There was also a very sexual kind of atmosphere in the music, and I wanted to throw blood. Mm-hmm. So I'm fascinated by your research and how you've explored women sort of reclaiming their voices through screaming, especially sort of in 20th century media. Mm-hmm. Like, tell us more about that. Yeah, I know this. I mean, that classical world, and especially, I feel like it's changing now. There's more women, and there's more of us challenging what is supposedly good music, right? And so there was a time though, even when I was a student, and I still have this a little bit, like when I write music that sounds nice or that's a bit consonant, and I don't always, like I do, I I like to use all of my, all the resources for the most part, and I like to bring fiddle tunes into. Um, But there's a time when I kept feeling like, oh, like this isn't, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. I should be, it should be, it should sound hard or it should be like 12 tone music or it should be pitch class set or it should be challenging. Like all these things that you study in, in your music classes, like in 20th and 21st century music, you learn about all these new ways of doing theory and you learn about atonal music. And that's kind of, we celebrate all these men, (laughs) Schoenberg, Babbitt, you know, who, yeah, who just, Barrio, I guess, too, who all just, like, really challenged the sound world in some ways, but it was very narrow in, in, in how it was. And I love that Yoko Ono quote, too, because she was in a really cool New York movement. Like, she was she was working with those who were, like, like Fluxus. I don't know if you've heard about Fluxus, but they're this, it was like this collaborative totally thinking outside of the box, which I hate that saying, but anyways, just totally thinking differently, like sideways on everything. Right. Right. Like thinking and just about visual art and music. And it was all kind of intersected. Like they had a journal that was like, you get a box and it might have a little bit of music, but it wasn't like, but their journal wasn't a journal, which was paper bound together. It was like a box of stuff. 
right? Like I love that. I know. It was so cool. And so she's part of this movement, and yet she still comes across what I used to feel like sometimes I'd walk into a room full of composers. And and this has happened to me recently. And you look around and you're like, oh, right, I'm the only woman here. Great. Mm. Right? Yeah. Um, and And that happened to me when I was applying to grad schools. It would happen to me. I mean, it happened to me recently. I was a... Um, uh, what do you, a, a mentor composer for the Winnipeg New Music Festival. This is, I'm, I don't, I'm kind of calling them out a little bit, but it was, but they were, they were doing this. Um, they had all these composers who are part of this. And we had kind of, I was one of the composers who was um, trying to mentor these young composers. And I walked into the room and I realized every single person chose a male young composer. And besides me, I was the only female mentor and so you walk, and then of course the composer in residence for the WSO was a man, and the um, all the people on staff were men. And you walk in and you realize, I'm the only woman. There wasn't even, and so, and so that 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 quote by Yoko is is just there is a way that. I mean, I'm generalizing. And I don't mean to, but there's there's some there's a certain type of music that sometimes you see just keeps getting rosen risen up no brought to forward um even in young composers and it's all the same and sometimes i'm like i'm not interested in that but of course my voice isn't the one that's choosing these composers or you know or the one that's letting students into the grad programs right or into the programs and so i have sat sometimes and seen this incredible young woman composer and fought for her like there and i don't think there's a young composer who Back, I would sit sometimes on the, so even though I was at the small little college in Manitoba, I'd sit, so they'd pull me into the University of Manitoba. Right. So I was, you know, at a small college, we didn't really have much of an undergrad in composition. I'd have some composition students because they were like, oh, I want to study with you. But mostly they weren't coming for composition. They'd kind of fi- find it there, right? Whereas at University of Manitoba, they were finding these young, um, women would actually even be applying for those, for composition, and I just remember fighting so hard for one. And they're like, well, but, you know, blah, blah. I'm like, no, she's really good. I don't know how you can't see it. Right. And so it's one of those things that and I love my male colleagues like often, but I'm like, they just see things differently than I do. Right. And so that's what I find a lot of the time. So basically, you're just telling us that the patriarchy and colonialism yeah. is alive and well. Oh, yes. Yeah, very much. Even so. in the composition, yeah. rec- like admissions departments. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. universities yeah that young woman she did end up in the program and she graduated with a with a and i'm sure she's BA doing amazing yeah i mean right i can't now. remember which i can't even i don't even know what she's doing particularly but there's a few women who i mentored through the university of manitoba and taught a few times um who are are doing very well yeah that sounds yeah. like something we need to like scream about yeah i know i know, um, I know it's so crazy um but let's go back to your research and and what you were talking about in terms of like that idea of screaming, screaming in music, vo- that type of vocalization, screaming on uh, just comp- in part as part of compositions, or just using the voice in different female voice in different ways. Like, talk us through a little bit about sort of where what we're seeing a little bit differently in media, right? Or maybe who's thinking quote outside of the box? Yes, yes. I mean, I first became really interested in in women's 
issues, I guess, would have been in my undergrad. Like I just started looking around. I was I, I got fascinated by media and the images of women in media. And I don't remember exactly how. I think my parents gave me a book um, which which was on on media and media images. Um, and it was really looking at sort of how we how we take women apart, right? Mm. So it started with this visual. Um, but even just like the theme of commercial. So I did one of my best pieces in my undergrad was taking quotes from the media and showing how ridiculous it was, but also how all these these images and all on and everything that we said was very sexual and really demoralized women, right? So and first I thought it was, oh, it's just like nowadays it's media and advertising. That's the problem, right? Of course, then I'm so I, that was my undergrad. I go into my master's and I start look I start to explore this a bit more. Um, and then I start to discover all this like scholarship where they're talking about women in opera and how we're killing women in opera. And that's what we see. Like you mean as a plot line? As a plot line. Sorry. Yes. I should be, I should be, <laughs> I should be more, more. Yeah. Yeah. How the stories are, yeah. are, are how women are killed and that these incredible arias are the last thing, you know, of course they're dying, but they sing these beautiful ar- arias. And how because these... we also have to die elegantly, exactly and beautifully. Yeah, it, we 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 have to do it. We have to do it all perfectly till the end. Yes, I know it's so crazy, <laughs> right? But like Carmen, you know, absolutely, today's Carmen, and like there's Desdemonda in Othello. I I, I quote those two yeah. in particular because they're women who have to die, mm-hmm. but then it's like these incredible, their incredible voices. It's like their cry, which I would say is almost like their final scream, but that the audience gets off on it. Like almost it's beautiful. Yeah, because it's beautiful and it's like but there's a word in French that I talk about. I don't know if I should say it on here, but it's called jouissance. But it's and you can't translate it because it's like the, it, it, it's it's a it means like this getting this beauty from from this cry, mm. but it's almost a little bit sexual too. Interesting. It's like this pleasure I can see this in it's a pleasure in yeah. the cry. Right. But but you take that further and it's kind of messed up. Yeah. Right. Like like and so I'm so like for me to read this stuff like Catherine Clément and um, uh, I can't remember the other the other. But 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 these scholars who talk about this um, and talk about and use this word jouissance. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is when I in my so then in my Ph.D. I'm continuing this. And that's when I start talking about um I get kind of into into uh, philosophy and and everything, which I I mean I, I don't feel like I'm that good at it, but it's because the literature took me there, right? Right. So, um, which was really kind of fascinating. So, but just just because I was interested in women's voices and then women expressing themselves, and then on top of that, I started studying. T- I, I for my dissertation, I looked at three women composers who were using women's voices within their electronic music. So it was, of course, very specific as a PhD has to be. Yes. Uh, dissertation has to be. Um, but it was the the person in particular, Wend Bartley, who now is, lives in Toronto, actually, and I connected with her when I was doing my, I guess it was when I was early in my PhD. I just loved her music because she did electronics. But but there is a quote, it was called, a, a piece that I looked at was called The Handless Maiden. And she kept repeating this is my story. No one tells it but me. Oh, that's so powerful. Because so often, like in of all course, these operas, yes. it's other, it's men, composers and librettists. Or telling, generally in life. Yeah. Other people telling women's stories. I don't know. I, well, I mean, you would probably even 
like you could see it best even just in your own culture, mm. right? Right. Yeah. Like your your Métis stories. Who tells? Who? Yeah. Who, who's telling? Who's those telling stories. the story? Yeah, I know. Who's recording those stories? Yeah. Or no the written is, word. Yeah, yeah. Part. Yeah, that's of right. This. That's right. And 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 you don't hear the actual stories. It's like this general like. Uh, you know, may t- uh, you know, they talk about Louis Riel often. They, mm-hmm. I say they, but people will talk about Louis Riel, and he was, uh, he was mad, and he was, you know, all these things that people make up about him, and and the Métis understanding is very different than that, right? So yes, it's like this, yeah, authorized version, so the Canadian government doesn't look so bad. So, yeah, <laughs> I think that yeah. that ship has sailed. But, oh yeah, yeah, uh, but it took a while. Yeah. They did get, they yeah. did, they did get a pass on that mm-hmm. for a while, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so interesting. I'm really, I'm really loving this. I, I, I do want to go into. I know that that your your paper also spoke a little bit about um, like mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Tell yes. us a little bit about that. So, so after I did all this work in, um, yeah, in, in sort of this back history. So, as actually, I finished my PhD, right? So then I got my dissertation done. I never really published it. I keep thinking I should, but it's been like I don't know, fifteen years now. Um, it's never too late. I know. That's what I, I, I keep thinking that's I should I should still do that. Um, but then I was watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's so crazy, and this was happening. I was kind of wondering how you got to that know, part of your paper. I know, I know, but it was. I mean, I remember. I mean, my husband was really into it when it was on. I wasn't really because I was so caught up in whatever study. I think I was doing my masters at the time, but but during my PhD, we were watching together from the beginning, and so this is now. I guess I two thousand eight. I graduated, so it would have been a little bit before that. But I didn't kind of clue into it until later. So we were watching the episode called Hush. Um, and I can't even remember what season it is in, but it's in a later season and it's with the gentleman, it's called. And it's, um, and the crate, the premise of the episode, I remember being so excited because I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I studied <laughs> or what I'm studying in my PhD, which is where the gentlemen have to take all the voices from everyone. It's not just the woman, but they take it from everyone. Um, and so it's a silent episode. It's a, it's a really incredible episode, like orally, <laughs> like just listening to it because because the sound is gone. Like when you take away people's voices, what's left, right? Crunching leaves when people walk. Yeah, I know. It was just, I mean, yeah, exactly. So it was just this incredible soundtrack, like for me. Interesting. Um, And then the thing that saves everyone is Buffy screaming. Ah, I love it. I know. And it's so, it's so like. I'm sold. I know. It's so opposite. (laughs) And so I just was absolutely fascinated by this. And I would watch this episode over and over. So then I was like, this links to all my research. Mm -hmm. And from there, I forget what I was doing exactly. But then I wanted to see other popular music. So then I discovered Alice Bag, Mm -hmm. who was a punk rocker in, I think she was in LA or anyway, she's somewhere in the US. So she, and she, a lot of her stuff was screaming and and it, it has to do with, her circumstances and everything um and then someone said to me as i'm like doing all this work they're like well you know margaret lawrence has like there's this character that she finds herself through screaming in a uh, and i was like what and so then i had to read that book um uh, and so it's a, a jest of god isn't it is that what it was and i have to look in my yeah. paper i have to remember what it is but yeah but yeah so that margaret lawrence character rachel cameron is her name uh, i remember that much um so those through, and oh, and then and then Yoko Ono, mm-hmm. and and I think and I can't the Yoko Ono. I think I stumbled across it because I was so fascinated by the New York, new music scene, avant garde scene too. Um, 
So, I mean, just, so those things just all came together. And so then I was giving a paper at a pop music and culture conference. So that, and partly like all my, I'd been, you know, this has been ruminating and then I had this opportunity to, to, to do an abstract. And I thought, oh man, I could bring all this stuff together in this popular music way, which was different from what I'd done before. So, so then it all becomes together in this huge paper that I gave later on when I kind of pull it all together. But yeah, but yeah. But, but what I really thought was, was interesting was the, irony of oh, the fact that they decided not to use the actress's screen. actual screen I know. and they voiced it over i know well and and then just think about whedon now like we don't talk about joss whedon anymore because he's a bit of a, well not great to woman right? right like so there's that side of it too but i wonder because he was like this, because he always took these opposite approaches and like was kind of a feminist, you think, and then you hear these things, which just broke my heart, right? Like when you hear these things. But but the fact that he took, that they couldn't use Buffy's scream because it for like some the reason actual wasn't, act, the, yeah, the, the actual actor, sorry. So yeah. Sarah Michelle Gaylor, yeah. she screamed and screamed and screamed. And then they didn't use any of it. And they didn't use any of it because it wasn't quite right. So oh they, so then in the show. I love that. That it wasn't yeah. quite right. Yeah. So they and, took, and how how is a scream supposed to I sound? Know, I know. What makes it quite right? I know. I know. I mean, it, the irony is just so... I know. When I first... Actually, the funny thing is when I first gave the paper, I didn't... Even though I knew that, I didn't say anything about it because I thought, oh, man, like, that's too crazy. But then when I presented it again, I just said, I have to just talk about yeah. this because... T- taking away the voice when it's at the exact moment that the voice is given... There's, there is something wrong about that moment. As much as it's so right in terms of the story, it's so wrong in the sound. And uh, I don't know. I but also, it also, yeah. like, it just, it just speaks to the fact that even... It speaks to the fact that even when we're trying to, like, in mainstream, have this message, it still has to be perfect. I know. Which means, do we... Are we really saying like are we really true to this message that we're trying to pass off or are we trying to like are people just trying to utilize this as a way of making a name for themselves yeah by portraying themselves as feminists or portraying themselves as thinking outside the box yeah for the purposes of being different and quirky and eclectic and getting the attention or are they really are people really caring about the message so I think that's really, it's really interesting to, and, and it's interesting that the juxtaposition between the fact that that was a male mm-hmm. sort of composer in this regard. Yeah, yeah. Versus. Yeah. Producer, yeah. creator, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Direct, like. Director. Directing yeah. this, yeah. this sound. Yeah. Versus the, the female composers that you refer to who were actually because they were so invested, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like when Bartley, I mean, I learned so much from her. And I, I one of these days I'm going to get together with her because um, she is in Toronto. And we, we saw like we saw each other on a Zoom call the one time. And I was like, oh. you know, it was like this moment of like waving <laughs> at her. So I think when I got to just get to Toronto and, and see her again. But like what impressed me so much about her work was every single person who was involved was named in that in the credits to the piece right like and 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 the collab and even like the person who wrote the libretto was not her and that person she brought her forward just as much like she it was 
she talks more about a true collaboration and really the work with my mom, which we'll get back to. And again, again, my mom and I talk a lot about how this is a, this is a collaboration. It's not what, it's not really what our society normally says. Like my mom is very uncomfortable saying the text is by her because her and I work on it quite collaboratively. Although I don't work collaboratively with the music itself because she's not interested in that. So it's really interesting. She wants me completely involved in the text. And doesn't like to just say it's by her, but I'm like, but that's what we do, right? When we write a book, we put the author, but there's been lots of editors who've helped that book to be oh, shaped, right? absolutely. Right? Yeah, that sort of, um, that's the problem of um, sort of community-engaged work, right? It gets mm-hmm. messy mm-hmm. because we've created a system that is completely colonial mm-hmm. in the way that it operates. Like, you have to have certain ways in which you credit people, and then there's only a certain number of them, and then it has to fit this box and when you start I mean I have the same problem I do a lot of community engaged work and it's like often the question is like how do we divide out the royalties for this how do we credit people who does the music actually belong to uh like all these things and it's like it doesn't fit the box and then you're like what do you do with this yeah how do you label it how do you how do you how do you put it into SOCAN? Like how? How do you do these things? Yeah. Then you have to try to make this thing work in the box. Yeah. And and yeah. so it's very limiting mm-hmm. in that way. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating. It is. And so so we've been trying to figure out how on my scores to write the copyright is both of ours, right? Mm-hmm. Like um so we're just starting to do that and um and put in collaboration with and but but yeah it's but that's good because there's only two of us really in that yeah. in that respect um so that's a bit easier but yeah it is but that's what that's what went I mean I was so impressed with her scores for that reason like even she took a sample of something and I can't and she found the names of every single person that was on that sample now I think she it had been something she'd recorded so she knew them and it was something like a community thing that they got right. together and done some, like saying together that's or something amazing. but but yeah like i just thought oh that's how you need to do it yeah um it's just so. not it's just our western way of doing it is not conducive to that no and it's hard it's harder to do how that. do you register the piece yeah how like, do you exactly. how do you who, who how do you put the copyright how do you yeah. and get everyone's yeah. permission like make yeah. sure you talk to everyone make sure they know what you're doing with everything and then you have to get people to sign things and then people mm-hmm. get like anxious about that right yeah. and yeah. so but it's like a requirement yeah oh it's so yeah oh yeah and we could go on and on about I know, this I know. <laughs> but I do want to come back to asking you about the work that you're doing with your mom and what's mm-hmm. on the horizon for you mm-hmm. and what can listeners look out for and of course you can send me uh we'll we'll put things in the show notes mm-hmm. as well for people to be able to like find you and, oh, and all that stuff but yeah like tell our listeners like what's on the horizon yeah so jack the fiddler is just one so i talked about that already uh, um um but we i just finished a piece with my mom uh where she did the text although we did the text in collaboration <laughs> uh, um and that one's called lives entwined uh and that will be it's um ensemble art chorale in quebec and they're doing a cd as well as it'll be on their next season uh, that's a little three minute piece but the text is about my mom and her sister beverly um and how and my sister beverly 
was, so this is a story that I find also very dear to my heart. I've written a lot about my Aunt Beverly, who was the oldest of my my Métis grandmother and settler grandfather, but had complications at birth. So she had multiple disabilities, mm. um, had a really hard life, was in an institution for almost 30 years that oh now has had a, just recently has, they've had to settle um, because like there's a whole lawsuit um, because it pr- it was proven that people were mistreated and my aunt was included in, um, was mistreated in that. Although she missed the settlement, she died a little too early. So there was like, you had to still be alive within a certain period of time. So she died in 2016. But my mom had found this really hard because growing up in a Métis family, there was Métis values and you valued everyone. But but then the kind of the colonial said, well, it's better for her with a person with a disability to not live in the community. Community, right. Right. And so, and she was, and, and she had like, she's old and she got away with stuff she shouldn't have because my grandmother didn't know how to deal with it, you know, like all these things, but ended up in an institution. Um, and my mom found it so hard growing up because she'd been the close, she was two years younger than her and had kind of looked out for her older sister. Um, and so it's just about their beautiful relationship. And then when she came out of the institution and into a, a much healthier group home, um, it was my mom had to work really hard because she'd been abused, right? And so then they worked really hard. And my aunt, I mean, she just blossomed from there. Like she stayed at our house all the time when we were kids growing up. And but I remember her being in the institution and coming out, and that and there was a real difference. She was overdrugged, and anyways, all these things. But that, so that's that's about that. So that's called Lives Entwined. Um, that's oh, yeah, that yeah. sounds lovely. Yeah. So that piece and it's and it talks it sounds about very their, powerful. It, yeah. Well, and it talks about their relationship and and that they and it's it's very poetic because it talks about them going through diff- thorny pathways and you know mm. but then but somehow they were their lives were entwined right like um embroidered with the same pattern right that kind of so thing. so where can listeners well that will be coming up like it'll be a cd coming up in the okay. next year but it's going to be a bit of time That's <laughs> it'll okay. be yeah six months or more and then probably there'll be uh, i think there might be doing a video and anyways we'll see that we'll see about that okay so that's coming up I guess the other thing is I'm doing a big a creation story. So it's been an important story for my mom and a lot of her own healing um, in her own life and, and um, the connections to the land that it really, this story really talks about. But we're talking about the, the flood, uh, the story of the flood. And uh, if anyone knows, it's Wasakachuk and the Great Flood is often what it's called. But it's about a little, the little muskrat that could is what I sometimes like to call it. <laughs> That's cute. But, but yeah, it's because it's when uh, Wasakachuk needs, they're, they're all end up in a canoe or on a raft or however. There's a lot of different versions of the story depending on the indigenous group. But the story that my mom was told, uh, Wasagachek was on a raft um, and uh, forgot to get some soil before the flood came and so needed someone to go get the soil. And so Beaver tried, couldn't do it, couldn't get far enough. Otter tried, couldn't get down far enough. And it was the little muskrat that went all the way to the bottom and got the soil so that Wasagachek could rebuild Turtle Island. And that's why... That's now Turtle Island. Yeah, it's a beautiful story about sort of the smallest and the the most overlooked becomes the hero, right? And it says a lot to kids. And I mean, it's a great story about the land we currently live on. Um, And it's really, we're kind of more connected to the Swampy Cree or the Plains Cree. Um, And so that's kind of the story from that part of Canada. But yeah. That sounds lovely. Yeah. So that's, that's what we're working on. That will be at the University of Manitoba eventually. Ooh. It's a while from now, probably a year and a half from now. So, okay. so that one, that one's coming up. But if you want work that's ha- already happened, yeah, um, I do have a CD, like I said, called Curlicue. It's available through streaming services. Or, awesome. Yep. Yeah. We will definitely include that yeah. information. Yep. Yeah. 
and I have physical copies if someone still wants to buy a CD. I have tons of them. So all right, well maybe yeah. we'll put your email in there just in case. Yep, yep. Um, that's great. People want to reach out to you, mm-hmm. Karen. Thank you. This has been awesome. I know it has been so awesome. It's so great to talk to you. Um, yeah. I mean, all the time, but especially about screaming because that's like, like one of my favorite, one of my favorite topics. So, thanks for coming on the show and sharing about your research and about the work that you're doing. And uh, we'll definitely leave some notes in for the listeners to figure out how they can follow you. That's great. This has been so fun. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Until next time. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. To learn more about how to connect with our guests, as well as resources mentioned during the episode, check out the show notes. If you are enjoying this podcast and are a woman local to the region of Waterloo looking for a safe place to release your anger, check out our Facebook group, Screaming Into the Void Waterloo Region. The link is in the show notes as well. Don't forget to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore the journey of women in the arts. (laughs) 